Good afternoon, good evening, good morning. Welcome to all of our global participants and we'll be starting the Future Proofing Next webcast in about two minutes. We've got a polling question and we would love it if you, as you tune in, would like to answer the advanced polling question. And we also have a few thought starter questions if you'd like to think about it before we start the actual webcast. Welcome to people who are just joining. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, and we're excited that we've got this great global group today. This is the Future Proofing Next webcast, and we'll be starting officially in just a couple minutes, but meanwhile, we've got some thought starter questions, and we invite you to answer the advance poll. We'll be starting in just a couple of minutes and wanted to invite you to answer the poll question and also think a little bit about the thought starter questions. In just a minute, we'll be starting the webcast future proofing next. So it's the top of the hour, and I'd like to welcome everyone to the Future Proofing Next webcast. I'll be starting off the webcast with a good conversation with my co-founder of Future Proofing Next and co-author of the book, Future Proofing Next. And today we'll be talking about the book, talking about the new tools, and also having a great discussion with Dave Marvitt, who we'll introduce in just a moment. As you're starting, we would love to have you do a couple of things. Number one is answer the advanced poll questions because it's always great for us to hear from you. We also have already gotten a couple of questions in advance, but all throughout the webcast, please feel free to ask questions either in the chat or in the Q&A, and you can find that on your screen if you scroll down. And uh, without any further hesitation, I'd love to introduce Sean Moffat and get started talking about the topic for today, which is the Future Proofing Next Toolkit, and we're calling it Future Proofing Next, the future beyond innovation. So first of all, welcome, Sean. Hey, Andrea, how are you? Uh, doing great. Uh, congratulations. I know that this times, time stamps this a little bit, but didn't we just have an election up there in, uh, northern, in northern country? Yeah, I, I want our book to be as uh, embracing to everybody. So I'm not going to mention who won and whether I liked it or not. But um, yeah, we just um, uh, voted in Justin Trudeau for a second term. So uh, there you go. So that'll timestamp this for a long time. <laughs> well, I wanted to start by doing a little bit of context before we get Dave to join the conversation with us. First of all, the question would be, why a book? We each wrote a book before. Uh, why did we decide at this moment in, uh, in innovation and business strategy history it was time for another book? So a little bit of that. Um, first, uh, tell us a little bit about the bookshelves, kind of the walk, the walk through the bookshelves and what led you personally to think, okay, it's a good time to, to have a new point of view and something else on the bookshelf. Yeah, I mean, I think there's always been like, a, you know, by decade or by kind of any, any kind of four or five year interval, kind of a look at what are the books that we really looked at and said that defines a decade. Uh, and certainly we've got eight to the side here where I think, you know, things based on a marketplace getting faster, technology taking a bigger role, innovation being one of these um, things that is so important yet increasingly frustrating. And so, 
Uh, I think we're standing on the shoulders of some giants here, maybe not all of them, but some giants and um, kind of taking that, uh, their thinking and taking it one step further. Well, one of the things that I think is really interesting is, and, and once again, we talked about the fact that you and I met because your book, Wikibrands, had come out and we had the same publisher. So when Find Your Next came out, I kept hearing about Sean Moffat and Wikibrands and this notion that there was a new era of business beginning, that it was going from a face-to-face, real-time kind of transactions to hard to remember that this is actually quite a few years ago now, maybe eight or so. But, you know, that, that e-commerce was just sort of happening and that this notion that you could be anywhere in the world and have a business model in your mind and become a competitor on a global stage was a brand new idea. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about Wikibrands and what inspired that and kind of what that led to in terms of, you know, why this, this new future-proofing next has come to your mind. Yeah, and I think back then uh, I was dealing with Don Tapscott, and um, collaboration was certainly a catchword at the time. But um, we had made an argument that said, "Look, the future of marketing and sales and strategy is about collaboration." And uh, most of what we looked at was post-market. And I think, if I think about the driving reason of why why not just start a company or do something else was. We're so passionate about a, uh, a very specific argument about how the world of you know, growing your business was gonna change. Uh, and I think as a former client, we were quite practitioner-centric in terms of, look, what will really help a group of people that might've been in our shoes previously? So kind of to make the parallel to now, and I'll be curious on your find your next as well, because when I read it for the first time, thankfully it was something that I looked at from an innovation standpoint and said, oh my Lord, this is a great, I wish I had this five years ago when I was a client type of book. So I think we both come at this from a practitioner, kind of how do we actually make a dent in your day-to-day lives as opposed to be some type of academic exercise. But, but those are the reasons behind my book, and, and maybe I'll throw it back to you in terms of you know, find your next and why, why the genesis to today. Well, I was really ambitious. It's, it, it makes me laugh, actually, um, where the find your next came from because I wanted to start the business genome project. I thought the human genome project has been taken, you know, years and years and hundreds and thousands of people, you know, thousands of people probably to work on. And at that point, I thought, well, you know, uh, business is kind of like a human genome project. There's so many different variables. I had done research and market research and been trained and all of my MBA training was pretty, you know, you were trying to do predictive analysis and models. And it seemed as if equations and math were the way to really get to business growth. And, and you'd sit in a room and try to do predictive modeling. And then I, I became curious because every real situation, and I think that's what you and I have in common, every real situation I'd walk in and people were like, yeah, well, we never really hit our five-year plan. And yeah, well, what we really do is we have this workaround. And it turned out that all these workarounds for how people actually found their next was not going in a predictive model, right? It was kind of this whole new thing. And so my inspiration for Find Your Next was really trying to look cross industry. And I started with a very humbling conversation that was with, of all people, Perry Farrell, who um, was with Jane's Addiction. And um, I sat with him and said, you know, I, he invented, by the way, Lollapalooza. And I said, okay, you know, you have like one chance to meet a rock star. So um, I said, uh, so which rock bands inspired you to develop Lollapalooza. And he spit his drink out and he said, you know, rock bands. He's like, I looked at NASCAR because they were able to get, pardon my French, you know, butts and seats for multiple days with multiple people. And that was a phenomenon that rock music hadn't gotten to yet. And it was the beginning of my realizing that it was actually the cross industry inspiration that was how a lot of companies and organizations at that time learned to move forward. And I think that that real, that real set of stories inspired me then and it's this compilation of more real stories since that book came out that inspired me to realize that things that we were doing whether it's you know lean startup or design thinking or the things that we'll talk about later today it it wasn't really the full story and you and i are really committed to practitioners in real time what's really going on in the field so i just realized that you know somebody better write this book and it might as well be us (laughs) <laughs> Good. <I'm glad. laughs> so, um, and so before we bring Dave on, you know, I'm also really interested because speaking of the field, one of the things I've admired about the work you've done since um, 
you know, since we first met, is how you have your finger on the pulse of actual leaders in corporations and what's on their minds. So share a little bit about that backdrop. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, in this world of social media and connection, it's like where kind of sometimes the loudest voices uh, ring supreme. Uh, I come from maybe a different school of thought where it's like, look, if you're going to try to prove an argument to anybody, hopefully you get a consensus amongst a larger group of people that says this is what actually exists in real life. And to pivot to this slide, we actually asked about 25 things that somebody might want to know about the world of growth and innovation and transformation. And I wanted to present this slide just because validating for our book, kind of where we're spending a lot of time in our consulting practice is innovation strategy, business models, best practices, and metrics and measurement. And I think disproportionately amongst those 25 traits, our book probably covers in, in, in pretty good detail these four areas. So it's always validating to uh, have an argument actually come to fruition um, based on some research and data. Well... And I see we've got some poll results too. So uh, I just saw them flash up on my screen, so. Uh, yeah, so uh, interestingly, it's, it's good news for us because it says that 50% of the people um, have landed on two things is really important. Um, where does your company need the most help? The top two are improving and prototyping the top innovation projects and ventures, which of course we know is part of the, uh, the when we talk about see, learn, decide, commit. It's part of the experimentation phase and building and aligning on marketplace implementation, which is, you know, once you start to really implement and, and commit, you have to make decisions and the whole organization has to get, uh, get aligned about that. So this is good news for us. And um, I'll keep going with the next slide from our perspective as well. Um, so future beyond innovation. This is the, you know, one of the things that, that we love to claim is that it, it's, it's, not really, it, you know, 10 years ago, it really was an issue of not having enough ideas. I remember walking into team after team and executive suite where you'd have these SWOT analysis and these retreats and you always had this notion that, you know, ideas were precious. And then open innovation happened and it was like, oh, wait a minute, there's a lot of ideas out there. Let's just really open the floodgates. So for a lot of companies that we've observed, and I know when we talk with Dave later, it's not necessarily this way all over the world, but a lot of places have sort of gotten, you know, been drinking the Kool-Aid, like how to get more ideas. Um, I would love to hear from your perspective, Sean, you know, what are some, because you, you follow trends so well in a way that's really deep and, and um, meaningful. You know, this is a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek way to look at the different eras, but what's your big aha um, before we bring Dave on in terms of why now? You know, why now in terms of this future beyond innovation? Why is it time to move beyond innovation? Yeah, and I'll use this as a metaphor. I won't go deep into Cooper Black and my, my secret love of that font here, but I think as a metaphor, <laughs> yeah, things have changed, right? I think um, three things from my perspective that um, I look at, you know, 2020 is an interesting period as, as I think, you know, just 2020 vision, a new decade, um, the, the symmetry of numbers. But I think three things. One, uh, the marketplace has got so much faster. Uh, I actually looked at 50 different metrics and, you know, you can make an argument the marketplace is operating about seven times faster than it was a generation ago, um, quite enabled by technology. So how does that change how you go to market with a whole bunch of different innovation? I think, um, there's been a little bit of myopia given all the schools of innovation that have happened that people have really focused on the upfront part and the user-centric part and to your point, generating ideas. There's not too many people that are in that camp um, that uh, can actually go to market with something and commercialize the stuff. So if you look at the scale of introducing innovation, um, I think there is some blind spots that we have that we wanted to placate in our um, reading. And the reality is, if, if innovation was going great and perfect, we wouldn't need a book, we wouldn't need a new school of thought, we wouldn't need anything, unfortunately. And I've got some research from uh, Berger um, from Germany. Uh, they've said that innovation as a corporate function is the 18th best performing function out of 23 corporate functions. So there is a problem up there that we're trying to fix. Well, that's a perfect way to introduce Dave Marvitt. Um, not only am I excited because Dave's here because he gets to now will shift roles and he'll, he'll play a little bit of the uh, 
interviewer role as well as being a subject matter expert himself. But he's a person I really value as a colleague. We've been really, I've been really lucky to work with him on projects that are so astounding we can't even just talk about them. Um, a lot of them in, in Japan and, and uh, some really interesting lost in translation experiences where, you know, you're really feeling that, that there's uh, lots of similarities around the world, but also lots of really important differences. So Dave is really, from a technical perspective, was voted one of 12 most influential people in the digital world. He's worked with Visa and MGM and Sony and AT&T and IBM. And, and a lot of this early research, which I'll, I'll let you describe, Dave, better than I can, but in terms of Starbright World and how you ended up having ex uh, collaboration and, and work with Steven Spielberg, some of the work with Nova, Caltech, working with Nobel Prize winners, in addition to holding tons of patents yourself and would really love to hear a little bit of your correction of what I just said and also maybe some refinement in terms of your perspective on your background and then we'll get into some of the other themes. Well, thanks. Well, first off, it's great to be here and to be with you guys, especially on a topic as important as <clears throat> kind of addressing the reality of innovation rather than merely the sort of the theoretical framework and how wonderful it is to uh, gin up new ideas. Um, yeah, I don't, so I don't think the purpose here is to, to dwell on my background other than to say that uh, I pride myself on idea generation and it's, it's really interesting to hear uh, about the pieces that are missing from uh, between that and actually success in the marketplace. So I'm looking forward to, to hearing the rest of the presentation today as much as I think anybody else is. So, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do one follow-up before we get into, you know, sort of the, the switch of the baton where, you know, you, you interview us a bit about this because um, one of the things that I think is really interesting is there is, it is a moment where the technology, how it really works, and we'll talk later about, you know, viability, feasibility, and desirability and some other nuances we have around that. But one of the things that I think is really important is if, if you, you need some, um, awareness of how technology and its capabilities offers new opportunities for business. And I think that even eight years ago, it wasn't that fast. You know, we hear about exponential change. We hear about like quantum computing and blockchain and all these things. And a lot of companies really have to take a deep breath and we'll talk about learning. You know, you can't just have a new offering in blockchain if you don't take a break and have people learn some things. And I've been really impressed with the way that you have led teams through the learning of the technology, not just have an idea, but the way to, we call it innovation, you can take to the bank. You know, the way you, you get to take that to the bank is by understanding all of the capabilities of a certain technology, because that's part of, that's part of what we didn't have to bring to the table when it was simply a matter of who has the best idea. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's, um, the way I describe it is, what does a technology mean? So, you know, you can talk about blockchain uh, or, you know, AI or quantum computing, and it's really easy to get lost in the weeds, um, in part for some of us, frankly, because those weeds are really cool and interesting. It's like, yeah, let's get in there. Um, and I think that's actually one of the, one of the dangers for the techno technologically inclined is they can get sucked into those details because they are so fascinating and delightful. But when you think about what a technology means, it's not even just, uh, you kind of, you don't start with what businesses that enables. You kind of start, at least I do, with how it changes the way we think about the world and not only what the future might look like, but what the possibilities are, sort of this vast scope of possibilities, many of which may not be the futures that we actually move into. And then we have to try and decide which of those futures are most appealing um, from a social perspective, but also, and personal, but also from an economic perspective. So. Yeah, when, when, when folks talk about learning about the new technologies, uh, it's, it's odd to say, but it's not quite about technology. It's about possibility and meaning. And uh, we can drill down on that if, if, uh, if there's time today. That's great. Well, so this is the moment where we have a format where we're handing the baton to you, Dave. So we would love for you to, <laughs> we would, yeah, I'll throw the virtual baton to you. Um, we would love for you to, to talk with, with Sean um, first, maybe a little bit about the the, the context, you know, we, we gave a little bit in the beginning, but there's also a lot more about, you know, why this is, you know, exciting to us and, and why, why it's a good time to start fresh. Sure. Well, well historians always talk about, you know, uh, landmarks being a little artificial. 
but but we are right on the cusp of 2020. And as you said, that's sort of a symmetrical year. It's, you know, clear vision. I mean, if ever there was a year that demanded clear vision, it's 2020, right? So, so where are we now? And, and what is that going to mean? Well, it's funny, uh, you know, we have no Y2K this time, thankfully. So uh, we're not spitting over into, uh, you know, millions of dollars being spent on uh, systems work. But, um, you know, I think, one of the interesting things we had come up in a previous webcast is I looked at search results on innovation specifically. And uh, I don't know if this was a seminal moment, but people looking for innovation around startups and entrepreneurial life versus corporate life have crossed each other. So it used to be this used to be the domain of corporates. Now <laughs> startups, we've all glamorized them. We all are in love with the Zuckerberg stories to the, to the point where we make movies about them now. But really I think, Corporates um, have gotten better, but I think we really got to look back at if you're going to really make a huge dent in the world today, chances are it's not going to be from a garage startup. Chances are it's going to be a larger company that's going to enable some of its forces to actually be able to produce something, not just in one country, but worldwide. So I think um, the pace of what's going on, uh, the fact that generally people have steered most of their time and attention over here has created this gap for myself and Andrea in terms of, okay, let's really think about how any company over 50 employees can push their, their, um, their growth objectives and agenda ahead. Well, and I'll throw a follow up to you, Sean, because we've got this uh, slide up here, um, just so that we don't get enemies by the millions of people thinking that we, <laughs> I liked how you said, you know, we, we, we have, what is it the thing you were saying about the shoulders of giants? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's been a ton of great thinking. And, and the great thing about being, you know, uh, web savvy is you can find all of it online and be able to actually bolt on kind of maybe slum somewhat different thinking. Um, I know we beat up on some of these people when it's convenient for us, but each one of these marked decades of innovation schools has, has added something to the mix. And it's funny, myself and David were talking uh, in advance of um, this discussion today, and uh, I made the statement, I don't think we're trying to be a new religion. We're not trying to kind of make you become scrum masters of future-proofing and do it exactly our way. But we have curated a lot of what's come before us and actually created something different. Um, the whole idea of business modeling is it's not creating something different, it's creating a configuration of different types of things. And so we think we've done that with our, our new book and our new philosophy of called future-proofing. And again, the need for that emerges out of what? I guess we could talk about research. It's sort of a similar question, right? Um, where was the need that led to this? And what, what convinces you that that's actually the case? I'll answer that quickly and then flip it over to Andrea because uh, I don't want to be doing more than 50% of the time of the talk here. But um, I think uh, I mentioned it earlier. I think we'll all recognize that corporate innovation probably isn't punching um, um, certainly above the weight of some of the other corporate functions. It tends to be not something that most mainstream companies think about as much as they should. And I think, you know, we laugh about this, but I'm, I'm a recovering corporate um, CMO. And essentially my life was I wake up, I go to work, I see generally the same 15 or 20 people every day with and some chance to see other people. And then I go home, Maybe I do something interesting outside of work, but generally uh, whatever my points of view that I brought into work would have been reinforced or pretty much, you know, similar people um, kind of um, looking at it from the same prism. I think what corporates really need to do is look around, look up, look forward, um, and have a much stronger aperture at what's actually happening out there in the world. So I'm going to flip it to Andrea too, in terms of answering that question. Well, I have a background that was mostly in strategy and, and looking um, before that sort of at ontology, you know, like, like market research, but in terms of patterns of, of, of groups of consumers and what, what it meant in terms of unmet needs. And what that turned into was the ability, and uh, Dave and Sean know this, but I, I became the CEO of a SaaS company in Silicon Valley that was the typical, you know, I knew that... I, that it was really important to do lean startup. I felt like the large companies that I was working with needed to get that speed and agility of a startup. And so I was very fortunate to be the CEO of a SaaS company that was 
the, it was co-founded by one of the leaders of the lean startup movement. And I was very fortunate to have visibility into what I love, which is data sets, right? Data sets and experiences of real teams. And so first there were 13,000 teams worth of data and like everyone's supposed to be going through the lean startup and suddenly at the end of it, having this miraculous go to market for a corporation. Um, and we started observing that it wasn't the best ideas that were getting the best traction. And that was baffling to me because first of all, I was a betting man at the time. So I would make a bet. I remember, and I'll, I'll say this, and I'm, I'm allowed to say this. Uh, I don't ever use client examples without permission, but you know, we were at the Mayo Clinic, brilliant people, very married to maybe you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years worth of very solid scientific technology experience. Um, first of all, really hard to pivot when you have a 15 year love and marriage to an idea. So midstream, we'd say, well, now it's not working. There's no market traction. We can't get product market fit. All you have to do, all you have to do is pivot. People don't know how to do that. People don't know how to look cross industry. They don't know how to find another business model. They're really uncomfortable trying to figure out, well, that didn't work. So fail fast and move on. Not that easy, really, with people who have technical expertise, for instance. And so what I started observing was, you know, what inspired me was, gosh, you know, we're telling them to do this, but it's really kind of got some missing pieces. One of the things was that. The other side for me was this notion of, um, and, and I, I love design thinking. I think it's fantastic. I was really fortunate to work on some IDEO projects early on and really learn design thinking as a very important and still valued tool. And you know, at Fujitsu, we, we use it a lot in terms of you know, some of the work that we do. The problem is if we think anything's a panacea, and so what was happening with the design thinking was that, you know, there was this expectation that we could take it all to the bank. So you'd come out of a room with 50 amazing ideas. I mean, there was no idea that couldn't be justified. But the question would be, well, what are we optimizing for here? Which one should we select? And I thought, you know, that's really, that's not been part of the conversation up until now. So that's, that was another thing that Sean and I wanted to do is have people help decide things and really then commit. So it's not just generate the ideas, but it's also as a group, you know, you have to decide what you're not going to do. And we'll talk about that later as well. Sean, do you want to talk about some of the stats behind it as well? Some of the research? Yeah, I mean, uh, this one's, a, 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 I guess, a teaser into kind of a <laughs> question as well in terms of, you know, I have a level of empathy for people that end up being in change roles in organizations. It's tough, right? Particularly when you don't have the background behind changing things. Uh, where do you start? Um, it's almost like playing a board game and not knowing the rules. And um, so, you know, four fifths of us, four out of every five people tasked with that exercise, you know, really do feel maybe not overwhelmed, uh, but certainly a little bit intimidated in terms of how this is all going to work. Quickly on this, we, we asked uh, people, what are the biggest uh, boulders that are in front of them in terms of the marketplace itself? Um, I won't go through all of these, but it's interesting. The first two on these was um, regarding speed, speed of the marketplace and speed of technology. And I think to my earlier point, the actual, you can create a massive corporate disruptive business in the span of two years is really, really um, kind of intervening how we think about innovation, how quick it needs to become. And if you go to the next one, the interesting thing about startups, all they really have to do is worry about the market and who's gonna fund them. Within corporate life, you have to worry not only about the market, maybe a bit of funding, but you also have to market to your own company. And I think um, if you look at this list of the five biggest headaches people have trying to deliver change inside companies, you get a bit of a mixed bag, but certainly resources and time, um, a little bit of, you know, we're not trying to reach far enough. And one of the big ones, I would have put it higher on my list is vision and strategic alignment. You have fiefdoms and political silos that just don't want to get along with each other. And if they only had a scalable process that made them get along with each other, you might deliver better results. So those were some of the research results we had from our um, corporate innovation playbook. Well, that's interesting. Um, actually, can you back up a slide real quick? Because this the fact that uh, the vision lack of vision and strategic alignment was uh, would have been higher on your list. Um, I think the lack of recognition of that mm. may be one of the problems as well. You can flip forward. Um, so. 
um, actually this question, where is innovation fallen short? Um, I, I both wonder where that's, where that's the case and also to what extent the lack of awareness of some of the problems has led to innovation not delivering as much as we might have expected. I'll, I'll, sure, I'll start. And, and uh, to me, this is just a matter of expectations. I, I feel like anything that becomes a panacea, it's, it's really dangerous because, you know, oh, um, Six Sigma, that's going to solve everything. Once we become efficient, that's going to solve everything. But I feel like it's this game of whack-a-mole where you kind of need the whole picture. So yes, you need to be efficient. Yes, you need to understand global markets. Yes, you need to understand competition within your line of sight. Yes, you need to understand trends, but which trends? Well, and then emerging needs and then value propositions that are stated and value propositions that are not stated. I mean, you could basically take a decade to focus on anything. And I, I think that where innovation has fallen short is more a matter of for today, and we're saying for 2020, what is the what is the, the, the issue that is the most important issue, just like before the internet, you know, you didn't have to worry about e-commerce in the year 1920. I mean, there was just no threat. There was no need to think about it. And so you didn't have to tackle that. And when you had multiple brands that were all toothpaste and toothpaste and toothpaste and toothpaste, you had to worry about how you were going to market and differentiate yourself. So for that era, it was the right thing to do. But, but I think that really, you know, if we look era to era, if you think about what was important at that time, we would contend that for 2020s, this notion that Sean talked about, speed is ridiculous. And the ability for startups, maybe not to sustain, but, you know, you used to have in-house R&D. So the research and development within a large company was an ongoing, you know, um, way to fan the flames a lot of times. But, you know, a lot of things have changed to the point where we think that there's speed, speed of the market. There's the second is the global nature. And there's a word that I use quite a bit. I won't go into it too much today, but bedfellows, being able to pick bedfellows well, whether it's, you know, a, a new um, fintech platform where you're trying to figure out who's going to be in your platform, which partners you're going to have if you're in we just got back from China, you know, if you're in China, who's going to be, you know, are there these geopolitical situations where, you know, when we were in China that day, they just said Zoom can't be there anymore. It was turned off. So, you know, there's, there's alliances, this notion of trust. These are not small things. And worrying about data trust and privacy was not an issue in the year 2009. That wasn't what was front of mind. And so what we believe is that it's those issues of 2020 that are making us think that, you know, what is it that leaders need to be really skilled in? And I also think that this notion of exponential change, I do believe that technology is changing quickly and that we have to stop and learn. And so when we get to the C, great, learn, there's a lot to learn. We kind of, if we got an MBA in 1995, you know, there's a lot that's changed since then. And so there's really some retooling that's required in 2020 that was not the case even 10 years ago. Sean, what do you think? I'll be quick about this and I'll refer to our last webcast as well. We spent the entire time talking about business models. And I think um, if I was to lay one accusation on the innovation industry, we're pretty good at developing new products and services, mm, a little bit less better developing experiences, probably a little bit less better transforming what we do process and total company wise, we're horrible at inventing or pivoting to new business models. Um, uh, I think we get intimidated by that's too big of a task or challenge. And a lot of times you get organ rejection inside larger companies where it's like, look, I've got a really good bonus and a nice salary here. Um, what you're proposing is totally not what got me into my corporate seat. Uh, therefore, I'm not going to support your view. So I think our inability to think large and look at how do you pivot your entire business to operate in a different way is, is a challenge. Interesting. I mean, the, uh, the slide here is suggesting that, that uh, the gaps are the issue, but actually I'm sort of struck by this idea that, I mean, where does innovation end, right? It's like, <laughs> I've got the new idea, I filed three patents on it, you know, here you go, right? So um, to me, that's, that's one of the big gaps. Um, 
is sort of, you know, where do you stop innovation and where do you start, I don't know, execution as though there's a distinction between the two. So how do you guys think about that in terms of your future proofing model? Well, you know, I think that's another piece of this is I, I'm always embracing of multiple perspectives in terms of innovation. And I think this is the other thing that I experienced that I, that I observe today. Innovation, it's true that innovation can be doing an incremental change better. That's, that's, I'm not going to say that's not innovation. Um, thinking differently, that's wonderful. Everybody should do some, you know, sticky notes at some point. There are different ways of getting groups to collaborate. That's great. But I think that it's become a catch-all because that's really not what's going to make substantive change within your organization. Um, so there, I'm of two minds, actually, and I hadn't thought about it until you asked this, Dave. On the one hand, yes, um, it is the case, and everybody who knows me knows this story, that the most innovative person to getting a, a client years ago in the fintech world to move into an, an online offering was the actuary who said he wasn't innovative. So to that, I would say, yeah, we need all kinds of innovation to be brought to the table for this to work. At the same time, we don't want to call everything innovation because then it's nothing, right? So um, I think that you know, this, this notion of being able to think of substantive ways, as Sean said, to develop a business model that will reach a substantially larger group of people and or in a, a new and emerging value proposition like mobility. You know, it used to be drive a car, now it's mobility. So how are you as an organization able to tackle those big things? And I think that that's the world of innovation that Sean and I are working on. Not to say that it's not innovative to do incremental things better, but that's, that's not the brand that we're talking about. Dave, did that answer your question? Yeah, it's what, what are your thoughts? I, I especially like the notion, I mean, there's a tension, right? Because at one level, innovation should permeate everything that you do in your organization. Uh, at the other, on the other hand, as you just pointed out, uh, if everything is innovation, then nothing is the term becomes meaningless. Hmm. Um, yeah, so, um, so well, that, that sort of brings us beautifully there, right? So if innovation isn't everything and if permeating everything becomes meaningless, then where does future proofing fit into that? And how do we even think about that as an alternative to innovation or at least an alternative mental framework? Sean, you wanna tackle that one? Yeah, I mean, I think we had a really good discussion yesterday on this one. I think um, I've got a couple of points to make here. I think um, future proofing at the heart of it is a broadened view of what interpret uh, of what innovation should be. But to the point where I think all making is innovation can be like the word love. It's like you love your dog, you love your wife, you love uh, your car. Those are three different levels of love, and then all of a sudden, love becomes meaningless, right? Um, I do think, and we've actually looked at constitualizing what is the different elements of uh, innovation. And if you really play it out, there's almost 30 core operations that go on with innovation. Uh, we're asking people to look beyond, this is just not ideas and products, it's beyond that. Uh, I think the other thing that we're trying to do with future proofing is, you know what, to the point we made earlier about this is such a daunting exercise for people and, and one that is probably less secure in the knowledge that it's going to be great in the future. We're not soothsayers. We're not like the Dion Warwick hotline that knows exactly what's going to happen in the future. But we've tried to introduce and curate a simple process that goes, look, uh, no matter what you think and how intimidating this first uh, part of getting started is, we've got four simple steps that if you follow some of the tools and the steps and follow some of the practices and best, um, best principles, you're probably not going to be too far off the mark. And thus we've, we've maybe arrogantly decided to choose this as a school of future proofing, which says, you know, trust the process, maybe not trust fully everything that comes out of it. And you'll probably be better off in the long run. So I'd like to jump in and say one quick thing and then I'll turn it to you, Dave. So I, I was just reading a really great post. I think it was Tendai Vicky's on anchoring bias. And, you know, you walk into a room and it's got a SWOT analysis on the wall. I mean, I've just walked into th probably thousands of these, right? Or you're about to do your strategy retreat. And by the way, we're hoping that Sean and I can do your strategy retreats in 2020, this new way, right? Because you walk in and it's like, you are anchored in quarterly earnings or pie charts or yesterday's results or your current, you know, what's in your line of sight today. And that anchoring bias, you cannot help but 
start there. That's your point of departure because you walk in the room and you're, and you're surrounded by it. We're hoping that with future proofing, and we call this a new point of departure, the new point of departure is the future, which by the way, we can see today in small ways in other industries right now. We don't think the future is H3, which is never going to happen. Like it's now. The future, early signs of what's happening to you, like this, this fintech com company I talked about, they saw e-commerce in other industries. Why not insurance, right? So, you, so it's this ability to start at this new point of departure, which is the future. And we, we know that, the, that there's kind of a contradiction in calling it like future proofing. You know, you can't, of course, we don't want to like prevent the future from happening, right? But what we want to do is have you feel that you have the, the wherewithal to start with the future eyes wide open and embrace the change and the dynamic that's required. So instead of being committed to like your absolute values, you're committed to the fact that you're a resilient organization with grit and you're going to see that other people are doing this or that there's this emerging need. And you're not going to say, we give up. We don't know how to do that. That's not our core competency. You know, Amazon says it better damn well become your core competency. You know, if people want e-commerce, you better, you better learn that. So Dave, what are your thoughts? It's just very interesting. There's this kind of a tension and a playing with opposites here because it seems like the way to be proofed against the future is to embrace it. Um, <laughs> and that, that's, that's, uh, huh. yeah, that's really interesting, right? Embrace, it's a, there's a very sort of Zen thing going on there that we'll have to take some time and articulate. I like that. That's very interesting. <laughs> Maybe well, we are religion after all. That sounds <laughs> very, uh, you know, we're missionaries of future-proofing, yeah. Well, and I love this. This came from the community in advance. And Sean, I don't know if you're looking at Q&A, but please, um, everyone can feel free to submit questions in the Q&A um, or in the chat. But this one came in advance, and we, I really love it because it, it, it is just the level of skepticism that we need. So, Dave, you know, what are your thoughts about this question? And then, uh, yeah, what are your thoughts about this question? Boy, um, I like that <laughs> earlier where, um, you know, innovation was about generating ideas, and now we've got lots of them, and now what? So, so that's kind of interesting. Um, yeah, and I think as we, we look back at, you know, one of the slides you had of sort of the different dominant models of what innovation is, um, they, they seem to me to be looking kind of inward rather than outward. Um, maybe even inward at, you know, a customer need or a customer framing, but not at, at sort of the larger world into which uh, any given innovation is going to land or any attempted innovation is going to land. So uh, that, that just strikes me as one reason why it's not just another innovation du, du jour. It's, it's a kind of a meta innovation, at least as it seems to me from what I've discussed with you guys. Well, we'll keep a pin in that and move on a little bit because now um, we're hoping that we, that we keep that challenge. We love that. We want to make sure that we can always answer that question and we'll, we'll, we'll keep addressing it as, as we continue down the path. Um, but I think, Dave, you know, let's, let's uh, have you get us started talking about the tools. Sure. So, yeah, please go ahead. I mean, that's basically what you guys have done, it seems to me, is build a mental framework, which is then rendered into a set of tools which people can use to move forward. How's that mapping to... Um, what you guys are up to. So Sean, I'll let you start with um, the, the overall framework and then I'll go a little bit into one set of the tools and then I'll let you talk about the next one. Yeah, and I'll, I'll give a compliment to Andrea here because um, my process of thinking is I go very large and, and kind of exhaustively go out to the world before collapsing on maybe something more simple. I think sometimes Andrea can mint something um, quicker than me in terms of just a very, very simple um, overarching process here of see, learn, decide, commit. And if I think about my own client experiences, you know, I can put the struggles that I had introducing change into companies um, very adequately into each one of these four bucket, buckets. And so see both inside and outside, learn in terms of what some of those uh, initial ideas and concepts might be. Actually, converge on something and actually have all your functional groups um, kind of with data and intuition in mind decide on what the best approach is. And then all the stuff that as a previous marketer, I might inherit a piece of innovation and go, hmm, how do I now commit to this to the marketplace and actually commercialize it and make sure that two or three years out, we've scaled up that activity. It's become behavior is kind of what the fourth step in our, uh, our process is. So for me, this is one of the real top three, kind of if this was a four dummies type of thing, you know, please remember, see, learn, decide, commit, because it's such an, just a, a simple 
kind of a treatise in terms of what um, we're preaching here. Well, and this is the more complicated version and it gets more and more complicated. So this is the sort of, if that was 30,000 feet, now we're going down to like 8,000 feet. Um, what we won't go into today by any means is, and, and it's sort of like, you know, it, what do they say? It takes 10 years to be an overnight success. You know, it takes a lot of years of seeing repeated patterns to realize what it is. And, and I think Sean and Dave and I are all in the, in the, in the um, with, have the priority of what's real. Like, how do you make this real for people who are actually trying to have sustainable revenues within a corporate setting? I mean, you can't just have models. And so each of these is well thought through, but this gets a little bit more complex. And, and the, the C part, I won't go into all of this, but it's seeing differently. And it's this notion, this, this same thing that Tendai's article had about you know, anchoring bias. If, if, you, if you think the way that you've always thought, like, it, like the medical example, you, know, you, you see every single problem within your own framework. You can't think outside. In, in the case that I was describing, it was a, a human bone project that really needed to be a veterinary bone project. But the guys weren't veterinarians, so they weren't going to think about horses. It's just not in their frame of reference. And so helping you very systematically and with rigor and discipline and, and um, science be exposed to things that aren't necessarily the way you see them. And there's a system and the method to getting people to see opportunities within business models, untapped opportunities within customer segments, and opportunities for technology, whether it's exponential or otherwise, to be applied in practical ways with your company. But it's going to also involve step two, which is learning. You can't just walk in and just magically do a blockchain project. I mean, Dave, I hope you'll speak to this. Um, you know, you actually have to learn some things. How does it work? And, and talk to people. And that's a whole piece that has been underrepresented in the literature and in the processes that we've seen because it's implicit, but it's not explicit. And so in this process, we're making it explicit. How do you learn faster? Uh, John Hagel, who's one of the thought leaders I really love, um, Center for the Edge, which is one of the best names ever in terms of, um, you know, Center for the Edge. Um, but, you know, he, he talks about rapid learning. Marco DiPolo at Roche enlightened me a couple years ago with the fact that it's about rapid learning. That's one of the competitive advantages, and we embrace that fully. Decide is the same thing. You know, the worst thing to do is decide based on what you already thought, which is what happens a lot of times. And then committing, you know, this notion of um, how you get people to come clean, be honest, set priorities, and commit, in my opinion, and I think I've talked also about Tim Leberek, who talks about the business romantic. I mean, we need to be passionate about our ideas. That's the one thing entrepreneurs have over on corporations is there's this level of like, I'm not going to sleep. I'm not going to let this go. I'm a dog with a bone in my mouth, and I'm not going to let it go until I solve this thing versus, yeah, I got my paycheck and take it or leave it. And so... Um, probably decide and commit have really been underrepresented as we've focused on idea generation. So Sean, do you want to talk about this tool a little bit? Yeah, just very quickly. I mean, um, I guess two or three <coughs> one, um, if you look at the wealth of innovation books that are out there, they almost deal fleetingly with culture, you know, culture beats strategy four to five times, uh, of the week. Uh, and so we've produced a simple tool that, you know, oftentimes who's executing change in the company is different than the company itself. You might be in a joint venture. You might be uh, a small team within a branch plant trying to do something that um, changes company point of view. And so this is just a simple tool in terms of what are some of the key cultural barriers that come into play? And can we at least get to the point of assessing where we both are on it and then maybe get to a point where we can actually have some steps to either bridge that gap or just recognize it's always going to exist. And so I think we're just pushing this out as one of 70 tools that may end up in our book that uh, are just simple, simple things that may help uh, change agents deliver what they need to. So we've gone from 40,000 feet to 10 to five, and now we're right on the ground. So yeah, Dave, what were you no, going to say? Just, I'm just, I haven't seen this before, and I'm just struck by the, um, by the fact that you're taking all these, these issues that are, have been, sort of been, uh, been tacit knowledge amongst good leaders and good innovators and kind of making it very explicit. Like, what are the things you need to worry about as you try and bring something from the, the realm of ideas, even sort of superficially agreed upon ideas, into actual practice? Um, 
And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of going through this like, oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, I had to do that once. Oh, I remember that one. Oh, we failed miserably because we didn't tick that box. So yeah, it's kind of nice to see um, all those years of experience laid out in a list. It's just a little bit striking, that's all. Well, that, and that's part of also getting into the, like the structure of the book, because now we'll, we'll just talk a little bit about the architecture. We started with see, learn, decide, commit, 40,000 foot, that's our framework, that's our blueprint. We went into the, the notion of what it looks like, and we've, de we've departed a bit from just like a business model canvas mindset, because this is holistic within a corporation. So now we'll just show you, this isn't intended to teach, but we'll just show you a couple of these. So for instance, um, if you go around the clock, you know, from the top and you go clockwise, um, there's an element of seeing. And so what we've just shown you in terms of see, learn, decide, commit, we answer the questions that have been coming up for 10 years. Uh, where do we stand today? What would success look like? What's the future we want to create? And so we've synthesized a lot of our experience into these kinds of chapters where people can pick and choose where they are in the process and dive deep into these. Um, same thing with the integrated forces, as Sean was saying earlier. Um, if we see only through the lens that we came in with, we haven't succeeded. And so how can we understand eyes wide open what's happening? But also people know that my ostrich image comes a lot. I mean, one of the things that makes me crazy is how many amazing presentations I go to where it's like, oh my gosh, you know, you can have uh, carbon free food and you know, these types of things. And then it's like, well, wait a minute we're not gonna do anything about that. Like that was nice. And the answer is, no, 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 you're supposed to actually do something. So we want people to see with an appetite of hunger to learn and the feeling of importance to actually do something. And when people talk about prototyping in building, make this real. How do you see in a way that inspires you that doesn't frighten you? So Sean, do you wanna talk a little bit about the, uh, the ad that we've done to desirability, feasibility, viability? Yeah, I'll zip through this. Uh, we've done like maybe 80 different uh, kind of billboards of things that kind of summarize some of our core things visually. Uh, you know, I think we've all looked at desirability, feasibility, and viability. My personal point of view is they focus a lot on what we can produce. R&D department's main fixation is, can we actually do that? Um, and I think maybe the D and Vs get short shrift. We've added two others into the mix. Suitability in terms of I think innovations ask is being, can you look at your portfolio with a, a broader exercise, both inside your company for your people and, and increasingly for your planet? So, you know, is this a suitable introduction that you should be having in futurability, which is kind of what we've served up here. You know, the world is going to be quite different three, four years from now, right? Um, Bezos uh, has said that I focus most of my time on something today on decisions that need to be made for 2021, 20, 22, right? So if the best CEO in the world, by some judgment, is doing that, um, futurability probably has some measure of, um, of need in, in a lot of different companies. And so that sort of blends us into a couple of things, and then I'll turn it back to Dave. So we'll, we'll just walk through a little preview here. So there's, there's approaches and real, real ways to do learning because it's not just enough to you know, see something and say that's amazing and then run away from it. And so the, 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 the tacit knowledge and the explicit process, we've got some tools that are very easy to use and they've been tested with, with teams and, and we're very excited about how you get your organization to learn faster. And uh, as Sean uh, loves to say, this notion is that the breakthroughs don't have to be that you go get a PhD in physics, not that there's anything wrong with that, but um, you know, a lot of it is, is seeing differently and, and the, seeing the breakthroughs that just are combining the things that we're exposed to without that anchoring bias. And so I won't go into this, but this is another approach that we found really interesting, you know, instead of looking at just industry to industry, if you imagine that you're a software company and you have different, different types of dimensions where you have to be good. You have to be good at being uh, large scale data. You have to be good, you know, fast as some of the startups. You have to be a thought leader. You have to be able to uh, have training, et cetera. This is the, the beginning of a way that clients think about their business that's not simply within their industry, you know, Netflix and traditional movies are probably not competitors with each other from this perspective. And so this allows you to look at who you might be a bedfellow with. It allows you to look at what's happening. And as you populate these parts of the aperture, 
you start to see your world and its future in a very different way. And once again, not for today, but in the, in the future, we'll, you know, we'll talk about some of these tools that are original to future-proofing next. And so the next is the polling question, and um, I'll open that up and then throw it to Dave to, uh, to, to ask us a little bit about um, the, the, the next phase of how we actually apply this as we start to wrap up. Yeah, it's funny that you come to confidence because what I was actually just thinking about is this sounds really scary, you know? I mean, I have a company, it's doing, you know, not great. Maybe the trends are looking down, but we're not in desperate shape yet. And you're asking me to, you know, try these radically new things with these radically new processes. I mean, yeah, how can, why you say confidence should come from confidence, but how do you get that confidence? And I'm not confident now. And how do I, I mean, how do you alleviate the fear? I guess is really my big question. So Sean, I'll let you do that one. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've thought about the metaphor of almost using all of our tools in this, this four-step process, almost like in fitness terms, David. Like, you know, the first step for me, uh, I'm a jogger. So the worst step uh, of my 10 kilometers I'm going to do is the first step out of the house, right? So uh, in, in some respects, uh, if we can get you over that, uh, that finish line or the starting line, I guess, becomes a lot simpler because once you start exercising muscle, it's amazing how much better you get at it. Um, but I think um, from a company standpoint, uh, in my experience, there's usually two or three things that spring people to action. Uh, one or two of them are probably not great. One is uh, you're in some kind of duress or crisis, therefore you have to move. So remember the Dell crisis, that kind of created a whole different kind of environment for their company. Two is your competitor has done something uh, and so you're reacting mode. Uh, and so it gets people to act, but maybe not for all the right reasons. So we're asking companies to look at it and say, look, you've seen your peer companies. Four out of the 10 top 10 companies in your, your segment are no longer going to be there over the next five years. We know this. So let's have uh, a rallying cry for change. And I think we've got poll results here as well. Yeah, so the poll results is great. 100% um, of the people are looking at interactive exercises and discoveries as the tools that they fall in love with, which is great because this is not a book book. This is what we've been calling a not a book. This is a book that is 90% interactive exercises and discoveries, which is great. Um, and it's what we found we needed. We needed less narrative, which changes day by day, and people can get that now online a lot easier than we, when we wrote our books. Um, this is a book that's, a, you know, we hope that it is dog-eared or electronically dog-eared to the point where you're using it all the time and changing it and, and interacting with the community. So I think that's great. And what I wanted to do before I turn it back to Dave is, you know, Sean and I have been field testing this with team after team after team. Luckily, all over the world, we've been really lucky. And um, learning a lot about what's real. And so these are the interactive exercises, discoveries, simple to see ex, uh, infographics and process maps that we have seen teams really succeed with. So um, it's great. It's almost like we scripted the audience to, to answer it that way. But I'd like to end this segment with Dave before we do the closeout. So Dave, you've, you've, you know, we've now done a bunch. I would love for you to weigh in on, first of all, um, what experiences you've had, you know, and um, this, this feeling of um, um, case studies that you can share? Um, and also what resonates with you with all of this? Gosh, um, there's so much to talk about and so much to think about here. Um, in terms of, uh, I'll, I'll hold the case studies for a moment just because the reflections are spinning in my mind. It's, um, it's interesting what you guys have done, you, this distinction between book and not a book. Um, it seems to me like there's a lot of, of knowledge, sort of static knowledge, if you will, that um, you've codified into process. And, and that's, that's kind of cool. So the, the book is, uh, from your description, um, a collection of processes that people can use. And yet those processes come from knowledge but they then help people create it on their own. So that's, I don't know, I'm just sort of spinning around in that, that set of relationships. Um, on the, the see, learn, decide, commit, I'm thinking about how that's applied to work that I've done. Um, in the early stages of any project, um, from video production to creating new businesses, 
I've always analogized it to being like a kid playing in a pile of leaves where it's not systematic, but you know, you, I grew up in New England, there's always piles of leaves in the fall, right? You, you grab the pile of leaves and you just kind of throw them around and you roll around in it. And um, this kind of immersion and looking at it from different perspectives is I think the essence for me of that, that delightful early stage seeing process. And then having done that, trying to figure out what all this means and given all these different perspectives and ways of looking at things, um, it's, it's interesting that there's a distinction between the seeing and the learning, right? The seeing is done with kind of an open childlike frame of mind, uh, willing to look at and consider anything. And then the learning is what are the patterns that we can derive from this? Um, so I guess as, as a case study example, um, we worked, and this is uh, some project that you, know, you, Andrea, and I did together. Um, we worked with a large Japanese life insurance company. And they said, with the aging population in Japan, um, old people don't buy life insurance. So what do we do? And we went to Japan and we talked to young people and middle-aged people and old people in urban and rural and suburban settings. And it was just this process of having conversations and playing in the leaves, if you will. And one of the things that we saw was that framing things in terms of life insurance was actually not the right framing. Actually to frame it in terms of lifestyle insurance, protecting people's lifestyles as they age. It's a radically new way of thinking about it. So anyhow, for the sake of time, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of stop there. But um, it, was, it was a very interesting process. Um, and I'm glad you were part of it. Well, it was, it was great to work with you on it. And, and once again, we've been out in the field doing these kinds of projects, learning and, and having the ahas at the end of the project going, you know, it's not, it's not the prescriptive, it's the experiential. And it is a science, but it's pure science. You know, you see something and you have a new idea versus you're just there to reinforce what you already thought. So with that, this could have been two hours, but, but we'll kind of put a bow around the Dave portion of this and I'll move to the Sean portion of the, the closeout. Thank you so much, Dave. Loved working with you and um, your, uh, your real-time application of so many of these um, principles has really inspired us to write this Not a Book book, Future Proofing Next. So thank you for being part of today. Delightful to be here. Uh, so now to you, Sean, um, we know that how to get started, that we have different tools than, than usual. We know that we're not victims of the future. We're leaders of organizations that can actually shape the future. We're optimistic, you know, despite how research oriented we are. Um, we've got a third polling question um, that, that we're opening up, but uh, help us understand how people in this community can continue to participate. Yeah, and, and thank you, David, as well. The, the powerful imagery of, um, you know, kids playing in leaves is probably going to show up in our book now that you've mentioned it. Uh, it's, a, it's a good impression that I leave with our first step here. Um, yeah, uh, my hope is people that are on here and probably after this um, that are watching it see something that resonates and hopefully you become almost part of our tribe. Uh, I know we said this wasn't religion, but uh, we do want people to, to, to galvanize themselves to this point of view. And then we've just got a few kind of announcements and things. Um, you know, certainly, you know, we have a newsletter that goes out every month. We'd love you to join it. Um, we are uh, going around the world in the true spirit of looking outside and around us. Um, we're uh, developing a group of 66 champions that kind of are either functioning as scouts or experts or opinion leaders that are helping us with some of the work that we're doing. And we are doing uh, our book launch in November. So, and very quickly we get our returns back. Measuring the return on innovation and agility, increasing the speed of innovation were deemed as being you know, two, two big focus areas for people. So um, this may actually drive some of the webinars that we end up doing in 2020. And then the next slide, Andrea. Yep. Uh, we do some of this work. I think uh, you've just profiled some of the work that you've done with Dave and we've kind of, we do a lot of different things and Andrea's protestation to me was, can we just do this kind of simply to people? And so it's like, we can do it on very surface level. We can get in a little bit waste and wade in with you guys. We do it in chess level or we can be fully ensconced as kind of, you know, almost innovators and residents, if you will, um, kind of side by side with our clients. Um, so that's my selling slide. Uh, we do have a, a future of work um, uh, webinar on November 19th. We've got three illustrious uh, panelists. Um, and so we go back to our format of interviewing other people. We switch it up because uh, Dave was so 
immensely talented today that he could perform the role of, I think I mentioned Dick Cavett, uh, use your own host that you love as well. And then last uh, slide, I think here. Or that is the last, slide. That's the last yeah, slide. That's the last slide. So I think as always, we, uh, we, we love this topic. We love the passion of the topic. Um, I know we've answered one of the questions, but um, uh, there may be others. I haven't, uh, as I've been talking, I haven't uh, seen anything in the chat box, but um, if I don't, and I don't see a question here is, I guess from, you know, I'll, I'll serve it back to both of you as kind of a closeout. Um, as you think about this, as we look at this together, Andrea, what's, what's something that we should be leaving with our audience? And maybe I'll leave it with you and then throw it to Dave in terms of uh, maybe big takeaway and then, uh, and then we'll close it out. Well, I'll, I'll start. Um, I think that the most important thing is that, that Sean and I are on the, the trail now. It took us a lot to get to the point of understanding simply how to get people to both measure return on innovation, get to the speed, not be afraid of the future, embrace it. Uh, I, like, I also love the play in the leaves, but you know, this notion of feeling like it's a laboratory where you can feel very optimistic that big change can happen within corporations. So Sean and I are you know, getting out on the road. Um, we're gonna be I'm going to Lisbon next, and then we're gonna be in LA and then in Copenhagen and we're, we're just we're, we would love to come out and work with you we are very eager to to uh, spawn these ideas and and have them take root in lots of different projects so please contact us and, and be part of the community and and that's I think the biggest thing is that you know after you write the book you really want to go out and and apply it and so we're hoping to meet a bunch of people around the world and, and fly all over the place together so Dave Close us out. Oh gosh, I guess I would just say that um, that future proofing is, as we said earlier, uh, it's embracing the change, not running from it. And interestingly enough, there's no choice. You have to embrace the change. You can't run from it because it's coming no matter what. So I guess uh, be part of it. And uh, some of the things that we've seen today are the tools to help one become part of that future. Awesome. Thanks everyone for being part of it and we'll see you next month. Bye everybody. Bye.